Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we will cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to ourselves after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Alexius Arctos for his amazing sound engineering and editing work, and Raphael Crooks for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. I have taken you on quite a roller coaster ride with this account, and today we meet with Ben again to complete this three part episode as he talks about family and provides a little more information about his time in the prison camps. I think this is my favourite episode because it covers the events that I find the most heartwarming in Ben's journey, which is Terry's reconnection with his family and the benefit of that to Ben himself by being accepted by the children that he cared and worried about over two lifetimes. You might have been wondering why men would opt to return to the States under a new name and give up their rights to contact with their families, particularly after being kept away from them for so long. David Henricks, the reporter who spoke to Mr Leard regarding the covert program to return MIA POWs to the States, says he spoke to some of the men who said they'd been returned this way on the phone, and he was given the reason that the men knew that there were more men still in the camps, and if they spoke out, those men would lose their chance to be released. As he put it, you kept the faith so that others might still come out. The other reason given was that if you've been away from your family in a camp for up to 20 years, when everybody thinks you're missing, presumed dead, people move on. Wives remarry, children are grown adults, and coming back could cause a lot of angst for families that have already been through too much and have found peace and closure through making new relationships. Ben himself relates that he also has a memory of the implication being made that contact with his family could put them into danger, which, when you think of the behaviour of these agencies throughout the whole period of the Vietnam War, would not be a caution that you would take lightly. I can understand Terry being extremely cautious about bringing his family to the attention of anyone in these groups, given their lack of compassion towards the MIA POWs and their willingness to go to great lengths to keep their secrets. Terry has always been most protective of his family, and I see that in Ben too, in his desire and efforts to try and maintain Terry's privacy and dignity. In Terry's case... His family also moved on while he was on the missing list. I think his feelings of protectiveness and his own desire not to give his family any more pain than they'd already experienced definitely explains the lack of contact with Terry's family had he returned to the States under a witness protection type scheme. I think Ben's case is the first one I've experienced that leaves me feeling like I'm still talking to Terry as much as I am to Ben. Terry is still a large part of Ben's life and I suspect that that will continue as long as Ben doesn't have the closure about his death in his past life. Let's rejoin Ben and Terry as we listen to this final, much gentler episode about family, love and acceptance. So with regard to you now had an idea of who this person was, you also, as you've gone along, you've also had memories come in 
of him that weren't related necessarily to the war and how much you want to get up to that into that we will leave up to you because yep. some of them are quite personal and quite difficult but uh yeah you also had memories of that time when did they sort of start to come in have you always had them or were they something that came in after you felt right. found the connection with him your story sort of yeah. unfolded hasn't it yeah i mean i would say like i said when i found him it was like a shock and I think it's like the door came fully open and um, everything that I kind of repressed was gone. Like the, the barrier between me and those memories was lifted and I began to involuntarily have memories come to me, like usually whilst awake. They weren't sort of when I was sleeping or anything, although some of them did come when I was sort of dropping off to sleep or, or waking up. So one of the sort of most powerful of those memories was I um, remembered getting married and I could remember this years before I went to Vietnam a couple of years before and I remember in Technicolor <laughs> every sort of detail of that memory and um, I could see my wife and she was I could see the, the cut of her dress I could see how I could feel how nervous I was uh, it was really tense situation and I was thinking well I mean, people get nervous when they get married, but there was something else there. And I was looking at my wife and I could see like the kind of the priest kind of officiating the, the wedding because I was holding her hands. And I, I was looking at her and I felt this overwhelming feeling that she was carrying my child. And that's why we were getting married. And um, it made me feel sick, if I'm honest with you. I almost, like it almost pulled me out of the memory because I, I, I couldn't quite comprehend what was going on. And... Um, I got the feeling then of my best man being my brother. Like I could see him there and he seemed to be wearing like a naval uniform. So I thought, well, maybe my my brother was in the Navy or something. I'd already kind of felt there was something about boats with this brother of mine. Uh, Because actually the thing of having a brother, I think I I felt that before I'd even found the person who I was. And then I saw us sort of going back down through the church after we were married and I could feel my side of the the church you know they were all quite happy you know like yay well you well done you know and her side were very stony faced and they weren't very weren't very happy about me (laughs) and um and then I remember being outside the church and you know I think they threw rice at us and all that and then we got into a car and I could see the car it was like uh, cream and or white and and red it was like it was my car and I think we got into that car and um yeah I mean the reason why this memory for me is so powerful is because it has a lot of elements in it that I could not have possibly have read about. I couldn't have influenced myself in any way. This was just pure memory. And um, several months later, after that particular memory, I decided to see if I could find out anything about it on the internet. I went on, um, if it was April, I had the memory in December, and then I found this information about it in April the newspaper clipping was like um, I decided to check one of these newspaper archive websites just typing in my past life surname see if I could find anything and uh, his first name and so on and I came across this newspaper clipping of the engagement of their wedding and um, I could see that the posting was made I think it was in made in May in 1961 or whatever and the, the wedding was due to be in June I thought, well, that's rather sh- short notice. So I was kind of a bit like, okay. And in the announcement, it said that my brother was my best man. It didn't say anything about the Navy there, but I was like, oh, well, at least 
you know, I could say that was true. When I decided to contact my past self's family, I mentioned this memory to them. And, and it was the first thing that we were talked about, really. And they said that it, it resonated with them. And um, but I was talking to my past life son about it. And he said that, yeah, his mom definitely was pregnant with him at the time of the wedding. And he didn't know about it, it, the uncle being the best man, but he said it didn't surprise him because they were like best friends. And he said that, yeah, he was in the Navy. Wow, so validation. Yeah. So how did you actually find your past life son? How did okay. you actually connection? Well, he was on, he has a website, which he's kind of kept over these years to sort of, sort of dedicated to his dad and the fact that his dad's still missing. And on this website, it kind of has some like anecdotes of people who served with his dad and so on. And sort of, you know, like he's kept a couple of documents on there about there and stuff. So, and he, and he just says, if you want to contact me, here's my email on there. So I thought, well, I'll reach out. And well, it wasn't so much, it wasn't a light consideration. It, it, it was pretty tough decision to make because I needed to know what my motivation was for contacting them and, and whether it was going to help things or whether it was going to make things more difficult but I felt I had to contact them and um, I ended up sort of saying at the beginning I have some kind of research on your dad so do you want me to send it you you know like just newspaper clippings and so on and he's like okay so I sent it over but then the kind of conversation kind of fizzled off and I was like well I felt I needed to talk to him about some of the memories I had specifically because some of them related to his dad's time missing and um, I didn't come clean about having memories, but I said that I had had like um, dreams because I felt that was a bit more easy to digest. And I described the one of the wedding to him and I asked him like, could we just talk? And um, yeah, sort of went from there. Was he receptive to you sort of having dreams about his dad at that point? How did he take it? I think he was cautious and it took a couple of months to actually get a proper conversation through an online chat and um i don't suppose he'd ever come across something like this before and there's another element in that there's been people out there who've taken advantage of pow mia families prisoner of war missing in action families so i mean him being cautious can't blame him but he also wasn't completely dismissive so eventually we managed to actually get a conversation in I managed to share with him. I had this urge to put all of my memories in a document, which was inspired by a dream that I had of, well, it wasn't really, a, it was kind of a dream. It was kind of half a dream, half awake, kind of visitation almost of my past life brother. And <laughs> that sounds bizarre, but it was, and in, in that dream, he kind of told me two things. And one of them was that I needed to put the puzzle pieces together. And after that, I got this urge to sort of write all these memories in a, in a document because I had been considering contacting the family and giving them the memories. That dream kind of was a bit like a push, like saying, it's okay, go ahead and do it. That's amazing, um, isn't it? That's, I'm, I'm actually yeah. not surprised that that happened because it's incredible how often that does seem to happen in cases where I've been saying lately that it, it's the veil between the two sides is really a lot closer than we think. And I think that sometimes we are definitely being pushed in directions to do things. And, right. you know, I think that 
I, I like watching Tyler Henry and I've been and it's been amazing how often he says that the people on the other side are still very connected with family and they still feel this urge to you know bring you to information and things I'm not really one to really embrace mediums but I gotta say he's pretty convincing and it makes yeah. sense if you look at it when you look at synchronicity with regard to reincarnation it makes sense as to why synchronicity happens and effectively that's what happened with you because you might not have contacted your son if you hadn't had the push from the brother. Yeah, and it, it was more of a sense of, I was feeling, I don't know, it's a really strange thing. I didn't want to push myself into their life or lives. And um, I didn't know if it was ethical. I don't know. There's no sort of guidebook on whether you should do this or not. And um, of course, in our culture, there's no context for it. A lot of people don't believe in reincarnation. I didn't want to push that. And I knew from my own memories that obviously there's a strong Catholic background with the family. So I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't want to cause them more pain as well. That was the major thing. And I didn't want to bring anything bad to them as a result of me contacting them. So because I knew that talking to them might open wounds. But I guess having that dream was kind of like him telling me, it's okay, go ahead. And you did have a favourable outcome because you have really maintained a sort of relationship with his son pretty much through. So mm -hmm. That's right. And actually have also made touch with his daughter as well now. Right. Yeah, that's so right. It just goes, I had, the reason I'm asking that is I actually just did an interview with her, another person, and he also had the same thing of, you know, he knows who his family is, doesn't feel that he can contact them because he feels like it's going to be too painful. And I'm like, well, maybe you should try it, you know. You don't know hmm. until you try. You can reach out and yeah. if you feel barriers are up and they're not wanting it then you haven't lost anything really you've tried and you've had that answer yeah I mean I think it helps to kind of put yourself in their position and think if somebody was contacting me about somebody I loved who who'd been lost or who died tragically or whatever you want somebody else to be extremely sensitive about it I think um, that's it isn't it yeah. I think you touch on the perfect point there Ben and that is especially in your case where Terry was a MIA for them to have you come forward and be able to have memories that they can basically say, yes, that's how it went, must be very soothing for them to think that their dad isn't just gone and right. that even though he's obviously gone in the sense that you are around, so therefore Terry obviously did die, but, mm -hmm. you know, you've, you've maintained that connection and you've shown to them that he himself will never really die because he lives on in you and then will live on again and again and again. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of a... It's a complicated one because I think if you know somebody's died, like you can grieve that person. But if you've been living for years with somebody being missing and in like Terry's case, there's strong evidence that the family later found they weren't, weren't aware of this at the time. But years later, like in the 1990s, they became aware that actually there was strong evidence that Terry didn't die during the inc incident. And there was ev some evidence that um, he was taken prisoner and possibly for an extended period of time. And there has never been any answers about what happened. So to know that, you also live with this sense of pain and grief that you're not able to close that wound. Yeah, there's no answer, is there? There's that feeling of, where is he? Is he still in some horrible situation? Is he hurt? Right. Is he, you know, you can't ever really find any closure because you're always wondering, where is he? So, Right. And I have to be honest with you, because I don't fully have the answer about what happened, I also don't feel fully closure about it. And that sounds bizarre because you think, well, you're reborn now, but 
it's not as simple as that. It's all the trauma and the grief that remains, I would say. That must be right. an awful memory to have given how much service he did and, mm-hmm. you know, how, how decorated and committed he was to his life in the military because he was pretty, wasn't he? Like, I mean, we haven't really touched on it much because, as I said, there's aspects to his private life that were a little sensitive, but that one of the reasons that you feel he went back was because of the difficulties in his family life that he wasn't really able to cope after having, which is understandable. A lot of veterans had that of not right. fitting in or being able to cope with civilian life again. Well, I'm pretty sure I had PTSD mm-hmm. before even all this happened from that first tour. And actually mm-hmm. talking to Terry's daughter, she pretty much confirmed to me that he had PTSD from some of the behaviours. And one of the behaviours actually persists to this day for me. I can get quite agitated if people stand behind me. And um, to the point where if, if my kids are behind me, I'll say, no, go away. I don't, I don't like them standing there. And one of the things that when I spoke to Terry's daughter, she told me that her dad couldn't stand people standing behind him after he came back from the war. But he had it one step further where people had to announce when they came in a room. So, yeah, for me, that's clear indication that at least the trauma from the first tour probably... I mean, the, the feeling I got was that I'm not useful here, but I am useful over there. That's what I was thinking when I mentioned that. That's why I feel that he came back for that second tour because he wasn't he wasn't coping in what you would call normal. And for him, in a right. way, the war was the only kind of crazy normal he could deal with. Exactly. Exactly that, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? And it, you're right, it does open, given the fact that you have no memory of In fact, I would say, go beyond that, I would say you feel very certain you didn't die in Vietnam. Yes, that it feels certain to me that I didn't die the way they've said that I died, the Vietnamese that is, and I don't have any memory apart from that really horrific memory of being really ill. I have memories that I can point to being held in this bamboo type of hut or whatever you want to call it, and being there extended periods of time not being able to move and being ill. Maybe because I tried to escape on repeated occasions. Uh, I don't think I was a very compliant prisoner, (laughs) at least not at the beginning. (laughs) And um, I think that they were like, well, one of the ways that they would punish you, and this is not just through my memory, but from what I've read of other people's accounts since, was they would cut the rations, which were already really terrible rations anyway, like maybe like a bowl of rice, for a, just to sustain a full-grown man. <laughs> and um, they would basically just keep you locked up in a, like leg irons or whatever. And um, they would say, well, no, you've got to stay in this way until you've learned uh, whatever it was they were trying to teach us, which was probably to be com- compliant and to see their, their cause. Mm. Wow. And if you've got dysentery, as you suspect you may have, that can underst- yeah. you can understand where you're phobia came from well I, I feel i got repeated bouts of it and but particularly one time when they cut our rations and i was very ill and also the man who i was sharing that um space with i think he also got ill so yeah i mean for me the memory of getting ill is related to that feeling of hell which is related to that place yeah and, so it, um, it slowly all made sense didn't it the the hell that you saw hmm. as a little kid was Vietnam going back to that yeah yep wow that must be 
very difficult to live with. I think that would be an extremely difficult thing to live with. It's difficult to live with and also as a child not being able to contextualize where that horror was coming from. And it took my adult mind to really comprehend it. And it's it's an ongoing journey for you. But actually, I was going to ask the guy that you we were talking about, the Vietnamese guy who swapped sides, and he's right. about the two of you. You mentioned that the guy in Cambodia was on a convert mission. Had he been made a prisoner of war and was doing a convert mission, or was it that he was doing a convert mission and was captured? This guy was never captured. Okay, what happened was analysts who got this information from this Vietnamese, when they, they interviewed this Vietnamese man to, to find out what his information was on the prisoners. And then the analysts were looking at the lists of men that they got either missing or whatever, and they narrowed it down to two possibilities. One of them was Terry, one of this was this man. And I don't think he was ever captured. I think he was killed. So oh. he was never cited in captivity. It's just that he potentially could have been the person that they were talk- that he was talking about being in captivity. I didn't know who that person was. I was trying to more work out from if there were actually covert operations being undertaken from men who were in the camps while they were over there, like if they were doing... Well, that never. <laughs> since I've had all these memories, I started to actually investigate the case themselves, looking through the files, and all the POW MIA files are on the Library of Congress Internet Archive, and I started to write a blog about what I was finding. And one of the blog posts I did was about this particular sighting and I started looking into the archives and I came across a file with the newspaper clipping because there was a newspaper clipping actually made a newspaper press article about this man's statements about seeing prisoners but all the details of the prisoners were taken out it just simply states and the Vietnamese are maybe holding people behind and they want money for them so I found that newspaper clipping in the middle, it seemed to be, in the middle of, randomly placed in the middle of a Vietnamese refugee's um, file. So it seemed to be like a file about some a refugee who was looking for asylum in America. And in the file, it says that this Vietnamese person had actually worked for the Americans. And then I thought, well, why is this newspaper clipping in the middle of this refugee's file? So I started to look into it and I had to go on to another, the Texas Tech University has its own archive of Vietnam War sort of research material. And it has like research material from other POW MIA researchers. And I managed to find a database of all these refugee files. And from that database, I could see the same number, like Croft referencing the two, that file. So that each, each refugee got a unique number. So I was able to find his number in this file and in that file, it stated his name, his Vietnamese name. And his Vietnamese name is the same name as the man who stated he'd seen these, who's apparently an NBA defector and stated he'd seen me, my past self, in captivity. So my conclusion from that was actually this man was never NBA fully. He was seen to be maybe actually working for Americans and maybe in certain places to actually report back to the Americans about prisoners who were potentially in camps who were American. Wow. Yeah. There's, yeah. There are files in Terry's file that I haven't been able to see, that other investigators haven't been able to get, and are considered classified top secret. And actually, with they've um, Terry's family have been able have been asking about this man who cited their dad, 
and always they get dismissed. And uh, I found evidence in the Library of Congress files and other places that actually when congressmen asked about this man who'd cited these Americans, that they'd been lied to. They were told wrong information about it. So they were lied to by American officials in the DIA or wherever they were about this man and his sightings and so on. So do you, what do you think happened to this guy? Do you think he was brought back to America and killed or do you think he was brought back to America and went into a witness protection sort of thing? I think he came back to America. I think he potentially could still be in America. The Vietnamese man? Yeah. He, he actually tried to go through what was called the orderly departure program. And that's where they started bringing men who'd worked for the Americans and the, sort of in a refugee type program back to America. Right. There you've got admittance that he was actually working for America. If he was trying to go right. through that program. And also Terry's family had been sort of to some of these POWMIA uh, meetings of families and so on. And one of the women that one of the officials who, who worked there actually admitted to Terry's son that he was probably working for the Americans, this man. So when you put all that in, in context, your memory of Terry dying in the States is not so smoke as mirrors as people would think. I mean, people will say, oh, even now the, the MIA POWs have been very downplayed and they've, yeah. it's, it's been sort of now spun that there never were any in the first place. Right. When in right. actual fact, I don't believe that. I think that there were men who were still mm -hmm. stuck over there for quite some time. So. Well, it's not so far-fetched when you think how many Vietnamese managed to get out of Vietnam. Mm. Do you think that Terry came and just became part of the witness protection program himself and was basically told, we'll pay you to come forward so that you don't embarrass us, basically? Or do you think it was more that he was brought across for to be... Because I would not be surprised if America didn't pull back soldiers who had all these skills that they could then use at that particular time, because it was a time right up until through the 60s and 70s where there was a lot of concern about the way the world was going. So, and given yeah. the CIA and the FBI and their somewhat dubious practices, I shouldn't probably say that, but it's true, let's face it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not 100% sure what happened. And I mean, I've been trying to find establish the facts which is why i've been researching so much into it to see if i can try and find any grain of truth and i know that there's things there that are just shady and it's not clear it's and it, it feels almost like it's deliberately murky so that anybody who looks will get sucked into the vacuum and won't be able to find the way out yeah, i mean if it were me i wish i my wishful thinking is thinking i wish i never came home because it adds another layer then to it. As we mentioned, Terry's private life was, I would say, probably we'd describe it as a little bit torturous. I mean, we've already established that he kind of had to get married whether he really wanted to or not. <laughs> so there's right. that. And it kind of then had spin-on effects that went on through their lives together in a way, ending in him right. going back. So mm -hmm. you would have to say, without going into detail, that it was not an easy time for Terry so then to come home under some sort of witness protection and not be allowed to contact his family, you've right. always felt yourself that Terry had conflicted feelings about what happened in his private life as well as his military life as well. Yeah, but I would say being held captive, it makes you put things in perspective about what's really important. Hmm. And um I think one of the things I used to think about was actually my, my kids. 
and going home and seeing them. That was a kind of thing that was always in, in my mind. Can I ask, since you've contacted your kids in this life as Ben, has that helped Terry at all? I think on some level, at least they know a little bit more about what happened. I mean, I would like to get full answers for them. I mean, that's the thing that really bothers me the most. It's a conflictive feeling because I think I would have liked to have seen them as I was then, not as who I am now. Is that because um, it's more difficult trying to contact them as Ben or because of the gender dysphoria yeah. things? Or I'd say it's probably a couple of things. I mean, I think it would have been, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to put in words. It's It's more of a sense of my wish was to see them as I wouldn't have wanted to reincarnate and see them, you know. That, that wouldn't have been my ideal choice. That makes sense. Yeah. Just to, to relate to them as a father and children. And... Exactly. Mm. Right. I mean, no, I can't do that. And it's, it's, it's difficult. But I think the fact that you, Ben, reached out to them and told them that you are Terry or that you feel that you are Terry has helped them, though, as well. I think it's helped your son. And I think it seemed to help your daughter as well. Yeah, I mean, like we said, there's there were a lot of things left unsaid about things, uh, you know, in the family. And I guess one of the things that was that's been good is to be able to tell them some of the things, like what were, from their perspective of their dad, because I don't think they've ever got to hear really what was going on for him. And maybe sometimes got he got branded a bit of, you know, selfish and womanizer and all these things, but without actually understanding the context behind what was going on and the fact mm. that you know he had significant trauma issues and so on to so be, to be able to explain that 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 has been cathartic i guess i think it probably helps them because from their side of it it's not just that dad didn't want really to be around the family and left and then never came home i think you have to look at everything that happens in the context of the time that it happened and at the time that it happened Men weren't allowed to be soft and gentle right. and talk about their feelings. And and so mm-hmm. Terry kind of stuck. He was stuck in a very difficult yeah. situation where he was supposed to be this man who sucked it up and dealt with it, you know. Right. And exactly. I think now, as Ben, you have more opportunity to be able to yeah. explain something that he possibly never could. No, right. There was no word to describe. Mm. And um, I actually did just t- talk to uh, Terry's daughter about that. And it wasn't that I wasn't feeling things or the emotions weren't there. It was just that there was absolutely no way to express them other than maybe anger, you know, negative ways. Exactly. For our listeners who are younger, if if you've younger people, it was a very difficult, difficult time for men because men were not allowed to express their feelings. They weren't. And then often for men, the only outlet they had was anger, actually, really. You Hmm. just had to be a man's man and suck it up and get on with it and it, it was a different time. There was not, you, people didn't really care about feelings or how difficult things were, especially for men. You were just in this box and that was it. Did you wonder if that's why you came back this time and were female? Do you feel that maybe that might have been one of the reasons you became a girl? Or do you think it was just a, that was the only option you had to come back at all? Well, I've thought about this and I think the major thing was I was trying to escape from the trauma. And I thought the further away I get from Terry, the further away I am from the trauma. So I became the complete opposite of Terry. I, I hated people like Terry. And that there 
was a big indication of me not wanting to open to that and accept it as actually part of me, a big part of me. And I think one of the things that I realized, because I mean, opening to the memories completely changed my life. And um, one of the things I realized was actually I never changed, but back then I was suffering as much as I've perhaps suffered sometimes in this life, but in a different way, because I it was as equally hard to be that man as it has been to perhaps been born in this body. To be this man, yeah. Right. Yeah, I can understand that. You've gained, you've gained like a, a better, men have more opportunity to, to explain themselves, to be themselves now in this world, but it's still not great. I wouldn't say it's still great. So if you yeah. think about the fact of the journey that you've been on and your memories, and I know we've talked before and you've said that it's been very difficult to have the memories. Have you found any positives out of what you've been through? Yeah, I mean, I don't fear dying anymore i mean i know a lot of people say that when when they've had these kind of memories but i think one of the major things is i feel like more of a whole person i mean prior to when i was repressing all those years i always felt like i was living half a life i wasn't really living my life i didn't know whose life it was it didn't feel like it was mine almost i think the more i've kind of opened to the trauma and sort of process things and the more i've allowed myself to be who i am the more i felt happier to be here so I, I guess that's a positive. So you could have, in a way, you're feeling that you're finding a certain peace between you and Terry, in a way, almost. Yeah, like integrating mm-hmm. aspects of him, although it's still ongoing. It's not. It's far from complete. But I'm going to say I'm so proud of you. I've watched you for years. We've we've been friends for now for a few years, and I'm so proud of the journey you've been on. You've just been amazing, and you've you've never failed to tackle things head head on, no matter how hard they were. And that's true courage, Ben. That really is true courage. So you've done a great job. And you're still doing a great job because I I think your story is unfinished. I don't think until you can finally work out what you reconcile with your memories of dying in in America, that will be the final piece of closure perhaps that you really need. Yeah. And it's going to be difficult to find because as we were talking before the show, if, if he did come back under some sort of witness protection program, there's a chance that if he was killed, he probably would be just almost like a John Doe situation. Like, I mean, how do you ever find out who he was? Because he wouldn't have had a past and the people that he knew in the past who could identify him, he wouldn't be in touch with anymore. So chances yeah. are if he was murdered, he would be a John Doe. Or So if anyone has any knowledge of any murders that happened in around about the, what, 80s in a northern town? Yeah, it was. it would, it would have been the 1980s, yeah. Or maybe even possibly a Canadian town if it's uh, on the close to the border. Right. Yeah. So if you have anyone sort of, I know it sounds crazy, but stranger things have happened. We have had one case solved in the SOR where someone related their story and someone else popped up and went, yep, that was my son, I think it was. So yeah. yeah. So it does happen. But until we do, keep us in the loop because, you know, I've got a feeling there might be more yet to come with your story. And thank yeah. you so, so much for coming on and doing this. I know it's been very difficult for you and I'm very proud of you. I really am. Thank you. Thanks for letting me talk about it. No, it was great. It's been an amazing listen. It's I've, I've been fascinated watching as we've gone along. And if we do find anything about what happened to Terry and where he ended up dying, 
I will certainly post another episode to the listeners find out the closure. Yeah, it's like having a book and having the, the last chapter torn out. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ben. I really Thank you. Thank you. I find Ben's story to be very inspiring. While this is a war story, it's so much more than that. If you look at Terry from the outside, there's no denying he was a tough guy who was extremely capable and he was an efficient and effective soldier. But Terry the man was more than that. I think he was a man caught in the paradigm of the 50s and the expectation of how men were meant to portray themselves. To demand that men quash their gentle, kind, compassionate side has been a grave mistake that our society made. One that, thankfully, seems to be moving to a more balanced, healthier viewpoint nowadays. Ben and I have spoken at great length about Terry's feelings of guilt and sorrow that his marriage was so dysfunctional, and of his concern and worry for his children with regard to the effect his disappearance had on them. If Terry had been able to talk about his fears, his love for his family, and his regret and grief about mistakes he made, he might not have gone back for that second tour and his children might have had a father. A wife might have found peace and love with the good man she married, and Terry himself might have been spared a fate that Ben describes as hell, of becoming an MIA POW. I've asked Ben in the past if there was anything that he wishes that he could have told his children but hasn't felt that he's been able to. He told me that he's grateful that they have allowed him to speak to them and to present to them what he knows. I think Terry was very bothered that his children were left without answers and I think there is a fear in him that they would associate lack of knowledge with lack of care about them on his part. Ben says they didn't shut the door on him when he spoke to them, even though he knew that a lot of what he related to them has been painful for them to examine. He feels sorry that things ended the way they did and he's even more sorry that they still don't have an answer to what really occurred. They and many of the other MIA POW families have had to carry the burden of not only losing and not knowing what happened to a loved one, but also in some cases to actually have to fight to get any grain of truth. They also have to live with the knowledge that they've been lied to and deceived. Ben says it's the sort of burden that no one deserves to live with. I admire Ben. He's a very kind, compassionate and wise person, and of course, he is Terry. Both men have now had two lifetimes that have involved a high degree of adversity to deal with, and yet Ben remains true to himself, always willing to question his findings and test them for truth. He is loyal to his friends and compassionate to the people he encounters in life, even though he never encountered compassion in his last life. It gives me a warmth in my bones to know that Terry now has the chance to be the true man he is too, through Ben. He's not just a strong, capable, resilient human being. He's a gentle man too. I've always felt that it's through suffering and adversity that we have the chance to become our best selves, and Ben is a true example of that belief. He faces his uphill battle of discovering the truth about the past with great courage and an open, questing mind, and I remain hopeful that he will get the answers he's been seeking for most of this current life. 
There have been times in doing this where I have heard anger in my own voice as I've related the documented facts about what happened after the war, and I apologise for that. I usually try to stay neutral because I've always believed that life isn't black and white and there are always two sides to everything. But it's impossible to find a reasonable justification for what happened to the MIA POWs. No matter how many mistakes or bad decisions were made, to choose the absolute worst-case scenario and leave these men to face a long, painful march into a tortured death is just reprehensible, particularly when you realise that it was largely undertaken to protect careers. We should always be able to look at our actions and ask ourselves, am I doing the right thing here? Does this feel like an honourable and compassionate way to act? I've always imagined it as an arrow lancing towards a target. If, in my mind's eye, the arrow hits the bullseye, I know I'm on the right path. But if I feel I miss the target or the arrow hits off-centre, then it's time to re-evaluate my position and start doing things differently because I know I'm not being my best self. Every action we undertake has a ripple effect. By our simplest actions, we can affect the lives of more people than we know, even people we may never even meet or come to know. This might not mean much to people who've suffered so greatly, but to the families of the MIA POWs who fought so long and hard to find their family members, for the senators bold enough to stand up and challenge the liars and deceivers, and for the reporters who brought this information into the light, we salute you. It's been a long, hard fight, but your bravery and determination has allowed the world to know something about the fate of these much-loved men, whose lives were valuable. They were fathers, brothers, sons and friends and the light they gave out to those around them can never be dimmed. To the MIA POWs, whichever side of the Great Divide you might be on, we send out love and support and healing and wish you safe travels and Godspeed, wherever you may be. We have heard of your terrible trials and we commend you for your bravery and strength of spirit. We hope your story being told today has helped you to feel heard and valued and we take away from your sacrifice a feeling of pride in your strength, bravery and fellowship to each other. You have given us the understanding of the importance to always be willing to learn from our mistakes and of the redemption that can be found of being able to change our bad decisions regardless of personal cost. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation, or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them, and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you'd become a Patreon supporter. You can find me on Patreon under Reincarnation PLR. 
I do extra content and your support helps me to keep pumping out content faster and lets me keep on doing what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose.